0: So one of the prevalent themes in our culture when it has to do with God is the theme of doubt. Belief in God, even for those who really want to believe in him, can feel like a battle sometimes. This experience of personal faith crises has always been a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So the minor prophet Habakkuk that we we just heard from, and we're going to spend most of our time there this morning, he, he is one proof of this. Here we find a prophet whose prophecy appears to be more about his own questioning of God than it does a sermon to other people. Our gospel reading of the story of Thomas's doubt, it's another instance of this. Uh, We could have also read the story of the man in Mark's gospel who spoke to Jesus about, about his chronically ill child. If you can do anything, the man said to Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. Uh, Jesus took issue with his, if you can. He challenged him to have faith, and the man replied to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. There's also this passing comment that we just heard at the end of the book of Jude, have mercy on those who doubt. It's as if the Bible seeks to normalize this struggle, so as to say, if you do wrestle with this, you are not at all alone. But then at the same time, the Bible seems to be saying as well, there is a way forward. It might not completely go away, but your doubt does not have to control you. It does not have to paralyze you. When we look at these examples of doubt in the Bible and then look out at the the doubt that's manifest in our culture, there's something different between them. So the doubt persistent in our culture is about... It's some search for transcendence, some meaning in life that's never discovered. You can listen to newer music like the Avet Brothers or Mumford and Sons. Uh, the Avet Brothers have a new song called Head Full of Doubt. The music is layered with a longing for transcendence, but the only thing valued is the search itself, not the discovery. Doubt for a lot of people today isn't actually doubt, it's closer to skepticism. Skepticism is the decision to doubt everything as a matter of principle. Often it's worn as a badge of pride in our day because it means that you have refused to be tricked. You refuse to believe something unless it can be absolutely proven to you. So you search and search but you rarely find the elusive certainty that you're looking for. We live on the other side of this time period known as the Enlightenment, the period of the 16 and 1700s when there was this surge in scientific uh, and technological discoveries. And one of the effects of this time period is that the scientific method began to be applied to all forms of knowledge, including knowledge about ourselves and knowledge about God. How do I know I exist? This was formerly an unthinkable question, but it began to be asked in earnest. And so you have a guy who comes up with the saying, I think, therefore I am. Humans become defined solely by our brains, not our bodies, our heart, our feelings, or any of those things, but our heads. Uh, Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher, he was an atheist and an author, and in a book titled, Religion and Science, he wrote this, that whatever knowledge is attainable, it must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. Now, this statement has a couple of problems. One, uh, Russell didn't come to this knowledge by the scientific method. He just decided it was the case. Two, in claiming this, he eliminates all kinds of knowledge that we come to apart from scientific certainty. So, the knowledge of what's important to us in life. Knowledge of another's love. Our widest held morals, too, the wrongness of murder, the value of caring for the weak and vulnerable, these are not based on scientific discovery, but they're based in good faith that they're good for us and good for the world. On one level, the things that matter the most in life are all things that cannot be proven with some scientific certainty. So going back to a minute ago, doubt has always been a part of the lives of people of faith. The scriptures normalize this. But it's taken on a new character in our culture of skepticism, of expecting certainty. It has an even stronger sway over all of us than it once did. People of faith and those who are not of faith. I said earlier that Habakkuk appears to be more about his questioning of God than a sermon to others. Now what's amazing is that Habakkuk's doubt and questioning of God actually becomes a sermon to other people. He shows us how to question God and come out alive on the other side. Not only alive, but stronger, better people of faith. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. How do you question God? How do you question God? Here's the first answer. When you doubt, actually question God. I mean literally, ask God a question, even complain to him. This is a problem that a lot of us have, especially if we come from the South. We like to be really nice. We don't want people to think we're mad at them. So when we're mad at someone, we talk to everyone else about it except them, and this is somehow more respectful to them. <laughs> we translate this to our relationship with God. We do not know how to complain to God. We don't know how to ask questions of Him. Why God? Even argue with Him. But the saints that we see in Scripture did not have the same reticence. Habakkuk kicks off a conversation with God like this. This is the literal beginning of his book. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Complaint of this kind is so common in the Psalms. It's an official category to describe most of them. Psalms of complaint or lament. Eleven times, at least, God is asked by His people in the Psalms, How long, O Lord? This is the prayer book and song book of the Bible, the place that Christians are supposed to learn how to pray and how to sing to God. And most of them are called complaints or laments. When's the last time you lamented or complained to God? Have you learned how to do this? How to lament or complain to Him? Now here's what's significant about this when it comes to doubt or questioning God. Skepticism turns faith into an abstraction. You you begin to look for some provable theory, not a person. And if you're looking for a provable theory, you're definitely going to come up short. You can get good information from that, but you're not going to get a satisfying relationship. And for most of us, relationship is what we long for. So information, no matter how good it is, isn't going to hold us by itself. Actually questioning God puts doubt on the right footing. We're looking for a relationship. That's what's broken in our doubts. Why are things this way? Where are you? And so we should start by speaking. Now, before we move on, it's worth pointing out that the story of Thomas in John's Gospel is similar to Habakkuk. It's only one level removed. So, He doesn't articulate his doubts directly to God. That's true. But he does articulate them very clearly in a place where his doubts can be known and heard. He even gives a condition for faith. I want to be able to stick my finger in the nail holes and my hand in his side, Thomas says. It's strange. It's crude. But Thomas says it. And here's what's a incredible about it. We'll come back to it in a minute. Thomas is not completely condemned for this. Not at all. God instead receives it as a request and he answers it directly. Thomas, here they are. Maybe it's because this is so brutally honest of Thomas to put things this way. There is this form of doubt and disbelief in our culture that can be dishonest. When a person poses to be open to discovering God, but doesn't really want to discover Him. When a person uses doubts and questions as a smokescreen, when the real issue is that you don't want to have God impose on your life. You're never willing to do the actual hard work of understanding your doubts and stating them clearly like Thomas does. And then also, you never put yourself in the places where God is most likely to reveal himself. Now, this is important. How do you question God? Well, first you need to actually ask him a question. You need to argue, complain, whatever that means. Make your case like Thomas did. This is what needs, I need to see. And here's the second part of how we question God. You wait, and you put yourself in places where God is likely to answer you. So if you've been a Christian for a very long time at all, you've probably had the experience of wishing that God would speak to you, that he would answer some of your questions, and feeling like he doesn't. Most Christians have this experience at some point in life. Habakkuk was a prophet. His job was to hear God's voice and accurately foretell what God was going to do in the world. Can you imagine getting paid commission on a job like that? Here's one of the things that God says to Habakkuk. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The righteous shall live by his faith. Some of you will have heard this before. Relationships, regardless of whether it's with a spouse, a child, a friend, or with God, are inherently inefficient. They don't work as quickly as we would like. They're complicated. People are a mystery. God is a mystery. And so it's the same with hearing from God. Whether it's because we're not able to hear Him, or God has chosen not to speak to our question yet. God doesn't always answer us quickly, but He does answer. And He tells us to wait for the answer. Now, there are places, though, that are more suited to hearing God's voice than others. Especially if God chooses to speak in those still small whispers in which he's known to speak. So while we wait for God, we have to find the places to listen. I'm going to name two places that God commonly speaks. The first one is in silence. In silence. This is Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Silence is an all-filled AWE, all-filled awareness of God, and it signifies submission. In returning and rest you shall be saved, says Isaiah. In quietness and in trust you shall be find your strength. A lot of us are used to getting things done with our hands and with our words. We go fix something or we make a call. But doubt and our deepest questions about life and about God, these things cannot be fixed this way. Silence is a way of creating space for God to do the kind of work that only He can do, to answer the kinds of questions that only He can answer. You know, if we're having special guests over to our home, We set aside time with them, don't we? We try to remove distractions. We try to make sure a phone isn't going to ring while we're spending time together. Other interruptions aren't going to happen. We want to be able to listen. And this is what we have to do with God through silence. We create space for God to speak and for us to listen. Now, honestly though, Silence feels nearly impossible for a lot of us. Our work, our family, the incessant need now to be reachable. But if we realize that our soul is dependent on it, we're going to find the life hacks for it. How often do you ride in the car with absolutely no noise? Music. Talk radio off for 10 minutes simply to listen and invite God to speak. It's the accumulation of these occurrences that makes this time significant. Just like you gain comfort with a friend over time, the silence with God slowly becomes a place of comfort and rest and a place where you can hear Him again. There are ways to find silence. No doubt, it's easier in some seasons of life than in others, but if we value it, we will find it. And this is a place that God commonly speaks, in the silence. Now the second place that God commonly speaks is in the community of faith. So this one comes from the story of Thomas. Thomas shows us that if we're really honest about our questions and about our doubts, if we really want answers, we'll go to a place where those questions and doubts can be challenged. He stated his crude condition for belief, didn't he? I want to be able to stick my finger in the nail holes in my hand in Jesus' side. Where is Thomas when he gets the chance to do that? He's with the disciples on the second Sunday of the resurrection. That's where he is. Where is Jesus most likely to appear to Thomas? Gathered with the disciples on the day of his resurrection. Every time we see Thomas, he is gathered with the disciples in the place where Jesus is most likely to reveal himself. Thomas has not given up on faith. He's holding on to the possibility and waiting, hoping that God will answer his questions. If you want to believe in God, even if it's a battle for you to believe in God, come to church. If you're baptized, keep coming to the Eucharist table. Invite your unbelieving friends to church. Our church needs to be a place where unbelieving people can wrestle their unbelief, where they can live in the tension of being interested in belief, but struggling with it. How do you question God? Well, first, actually question Him. And second, wait. And place yourself in the places where you can hear Him, where God is likely to answer you. And here's the last one. How do you question God? At some point you have to take a plunge of faith. At some point you do have to take a plunge of faith. Habakkuk starts out by questioning God. This is how he begins his book and there's nothing wrong with this. He then waits and he listens. This is what chapters two and part of three are about. And at the end, we hear Habakkuk throw himself completely on God. These are verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. When the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, when the olive trees do not produce and the field yields no crops, when the sheep disappear from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice because of the Lord. I will be happy because of the God who delivers me. The sovereign Lord is my source of strength. He gives me the agility of a deer. He enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. You see, for Habakkuk, the rugged terrain is his soul and its struggle to believe. But he questions God, and then he waits. And here, Habakkuk discovers that God will give his soul the strength to continue to have faith. In other words, Habakkuk is saying, if everything else in life fails, I know that God will be there. He will be faithful to me. Now, how do you come to this kind of knowledge? Well, because you are willing to question God, to put yourself out there. And then you experience God's strength that wells up in you. You see, even Habakkuk's questions turned out to be a place where God's strength could grow up through his weakness. You see, this is what we hear in the New Testament. Paul says, where I am weak, then I am strong. And this is what Habakkuk discovers. His faith is weak. He has lots of questions. But even in that weakness, God is capable of being strong to him. So the reason that Habakkuk's story of questioning God becomes a book and a sermon in itself is because his doubt and his questions turn out to be not contrary to faith, but occasions for his faith to increase. And the same is the case with Thomas. Thomas, even though he is known to us commonly as Doubting Thomas, he's actually the first disciple to make this strong acclamation to Jesus. My Lord and my God. Thomas makes the most personal acclamation to Jesus of any of the disciples. And he gets there through doubt and the willingness to state his doubts. In both Habakkuk and Thomas, honest doubt is shown to be a more spiritual attitude than superficial belief. How do we question God? Again, we actually question Him. We complain, we argue, we don't practice southern hospitality with God, we're willing to speak openly with Him. And then we wait. And we wait in the places where God is most likely to come and answer us and where we are most likely to hear Him in the silence and in the community of faith. And then we take the plunge. Now, this is a cycle that many of us need to go through over and over and over again throughout our lives. We ask the questions. We wait. And we take the plunge. And then a year later, we have to do it all over again. But, in doing this, we will find that God is strong. That in our greatest weaknesses, God can fill us with His strength. And in the words of Jude, where Jude says that we should have mercy on those who doubt, we learn this best from God the Father, and God the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have mercy on us in our own doubts. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.